Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS. We are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning. Welcome to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and... Chris McGregor. And today, Chris, another delight here to have back with us, Carl Schultz. Carl, the director of Genesis Personal Development Center in Pittsburgh, and the author of 10 books on Lexio Divina, Biblical Spirituality, and Personal Growth. Carl presents workshops and retreats throughout the country. And Carl is joining us today. We're going to talk about a book on Pope Paul VI called Christian Values and Virtues. Carl, good morning, and welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be with you folks again. Carl, it's just great to have you. I, after our last talk where you shared with us the, the work that you did with Lectional Divina on how to pray with the Bible, I can't tell you the number of calls we got and all the people racing to the different Catholic bookstores and online to try to get your book. Well, that's great. I'm, I, I appreciate that. I, I won't complain about that. Well, good. <laughs> I just think it's also very exciting that you've done a work on a man whom I just admire and love greatly and have come to know probably more in the last few years than I did when, I, when he was even alive. And, of course, we're talking about Pope Paul VI. How did you come to know him? Well, partly it's a function of age. I kind of grew up with him, just like many of the young folks today grew up with, you know, John Paul II, and he's all they know. Mm-hmm. Ray, his, his pontificate was so long. He was Pope during my formative years, and I liked him. You know, he, he was growing up, I wasn't, I wouldn't say, I wasn't a uh, huge fan of his. As I was growing up, I was playing basketball and, you know, doing all the stuff you do when you're a teenager and going to CCD, but I really wasn't, you know, paying that much attention to it. But when I went to college, I got interested in, it, in him because the Newman Center at the University of Michigan, where I attended, was very active, and they had a very strong social justice dimension, and Paul VI encyclical on it, Popular and Progressio, is really the foundation of modern Catholic social teaching, and it's my understanding that Benedict's new encyclical is going to draw heavily on that. So that was pretty much my introduction. I was a child, actually, it's really funny, his gestures are what stuck with me. I remember my mother told me, and she wasn't that you know, interested in theology or anything. She was a faithful Catholic and a, a churchgoer, but she would tell me about how Paul VI broke down when he went to India in 1964. Most people don't know that. He, he insisted on going to one of the poor sections of Calcutta, and he actually just broke down. I mean, he, when he saw the poverty, and it really made an impression on people. And then in 1965, he gave a uh, superb address at the United Nations, and um, I have about 20 copies of the various books from secular publishers, Time Magazine, put one out, all these special editions from secular publishers commemorating his one-day visit to the United States. It was a whirlwind trip. So that's pretty much how I got into him. And then as I got older, when I was reading his writings, uh, I just became fascinated by it because temperamentally I can really re- uh, relate to him very well because um, he's a man of extreme subtlety. He really... And people criticized him for being indecisive, but that was really a reflection of the fact that he did not oversimplify issues. He really he agonized because he, he really felt the pain of people, and he recognized what was at stake, and therefore he really nuanced his, his writings such to be as pastoral as well as principled as possible. The thing about Pope Paul VI, what I've come to find, Carl, is he really was so prophetic, and his message is one that people did not want to hear, especially back in the 60s. You know, there's no question. In fact, you brought that up in March. On March the um, 7th, uh, 2007, Pope Benedict uh, gave an address at the Paul VI Institute in Brescia, which is in northern Italy, um, halfway between 
Milan and Venice, approximately. And I had actually uh, did some research there back in 2001, right after the um, uh, September 11th, so it was an interesting experience when I was there. But he gave an address, and he repeated verbatim John Paul II's comments in 1980 regarding the importance of studying Paul, really devoting a lot of time to him, and how prophetic and how amazingly contemporary his writings are. That's I would agree with you. It, and it, he really... He really read the signs of the times, and when you read his writings now, it's as if they're you know written currently. He's and, and it's a, his insight into the culture and the dynamics of the 20th century is phenomenal, and that's something that people have often pointed out that he really understood the modern psyche. His father was a newspaper publisher, and his mother was very active in Catholic social action in the early 20th century, and. Uh, one of his brothers was a doctor, and his other was a lawyer, so he really had the whole gamut, and he was a diplomat, and uh, the Secretary of State for Pius XII, pro-Secretary of State, along with Monsignor Tardini in the 50s, before being Archbishop of Milan, prior to becoming Pope, and he really had um, he really had a grasp of the modern soul, and that's, the, that's why I like his writings, because he'll often preface things with, whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. I really enjoy that, when a Pope, you know, stands with you admitting that some of these teachings are hard sayings and they go against our grain at times, but nonetheless we have to proclaim them. Recently I had the great blessing of being able to visit Rome and I went below St. Peter's where they keep the the crypts, uh, the right. tombs of the popes. And of course there was a, a long line, they were moving people through very quickly in front of John Paul's. I mean right. you could only, you could barely get a genuflection and they had you moving along, uh, but right before you reached John Paul is just the very simple tomb of Pope Paul VI, and I just sat there, Carl. I was able to stop and just mm-hmm. kind of to be reflective with him. And I think what what's so important about the work that you're doing, especially with Pope Paul VI, Christian values and virtues, is that you're letting people come to know the mind and the heart of this great man whom has been undervalued. Yeah, I've. I've traveled, and this is no exaggeration, all over the world. In fact, I was just in South America, Argentina, discussing Paul VI with a priest um, a couple months ago who had actually got his MBA from University of Pennsylvania, was now in the cathedral in, um, outside of Buenos Aires. And we were talking uh, about Paul VI's impact, and his writings are absolutely profound, and, most, and, and they're very practical. So he wrote a letter on Christian joy, and it's really quite amazing. People don't, you know... There's all these popular self-help books on being happy and so forth, and here we have the, uh, the the top dog, so to speak, the Pope, talking about Christian joy in a letter. So he um, he re- and, and he spoke on so many different topics. His his letter on um, evangelization is still considered the standard. John Paul never did a pastoral letter on evangelization because when he talked about it, he didn't need to. He would simply quote Paul the sixth. Mm-hmm. So. He really did, and he really complimented John Paul II, but it's interesting, as you said, how different, because when you mentioned about the crypt, I knew what you were going to say, because when I was in Rome and I was there, there was nobody at his crypt, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, when he died, the famous um, Dominican theologian, Eve Congar, said that it, he planned his um, funeral very simple, and in fact, in his will, it says, no monument for me, and, and all he had was the gospel right on top of that simple box, and... Uh, uh, he was just a very simple, unassuming person, and he, you know, as I mentioned, all over the world, I've discussed this with people, and people in the know who are learned in theology and scripture uh, 
will, will tell you that he is at the highest level in terms of the history of the church, in terms of papacies. He's a, and, he, and he kept the church together and implemented Vatican II in a unified way and did the best he could within the culture. And that's, I think that's going to be one of his great testaments. He really does have a message that's relevant for us today, doesn't he? Without question, the most inspirational piece of Christian literature that I've ever read is an excerpt from his will in which he talks about, it's called, you know, it's called a reflection on dying. He really, he goes into, um, this was actually done in 1965. He died in 1978, but in 1965, he came up with this, and I'll just read it very briefly, but I think for those who are listening, it's really food for thought, and I'm going to emphasize the, the middle part of it, which is great. And he says, it seems that the departure must be expressed in a great and simple act of recognition and gratitude. This mortal life is, notwithstanding its labors, hidden secrets, sufferings, to fatal, fatal frailty, a most beautiful thing, a wonder ever original and moving, an event worthy to be celebrated in joy and glory, life, human life, not less worthy of exaltation and happy amazement, is the framework in which life is contained. This immense world, mysterious, magnificent, this universe with its thousand forces, thousand laws, thousand beauties, thousand depths. And here is, in my opinion, the best part. Why have I not studied, explored, admired sufficiently this place in which life unfolds? Mm. What unpardonable distraction, what reprehensible superficiality. This world scene is the design, still today incomprehensible for the most part, of a creator God who calls himself our Father in heaven. Thank you, O oh God. Thanksgiving and glory to you, Father. And it's interesting that he died saying he our Father, so even in his testament in 1965, he was even, to a certain extent, prophetic about his own death. He died with the Lord's Prayer on his lips, a very simple prayer, but an essential one. When I share that with people, I, I, it, you know, I just gave a Lexio Divina retreat uh, last week in, uh, in Illinois, and I asked people to think about that. What are the unpardonable distractions in your life? What are the reprehensible superficialities? And just like the words of Scripture, they don't judge us in a sense of condemning. They challenge us. They ask us to be all we can be. And Paul VI, in his encyclical Popular and Progressio on the Development of Peoples that was issued in March of 1967, talked about that it's the design of God that every person should fulfill his potential. So he's really relevant. And when, when we meet people who are not Catholic, we can share Paul VI because he really focuses on the integration of the human and the divine. It shows how in Catholicism, and more particularly in the message of Jesus, those two come together. When you just even look at the little-known things that you have in the book about his life, I'm recalling a story Pope John Paul had said that the home is really the first seminary. And right. for Pope Paul VI, that was really true, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, he, you know, it, and, and that's why I think um, one, of, one of my friends has been bothering me incessantly. He says, you've got to write a book on Paul VI, John the Twenty-Third, and John Paul the Second, because John Paul I now didn't live that long, so it's kind of tough to flesh him out that much. Mm -hmm. but these three popes are three of the greatest in the history of the Church. I mean, it, and, and they're so different. It's amazing, temperamentally, uh, but, but yet they, they, they come together so absolutely, uh, incredibly, and um, in so many ways... They, they really complement each other and uh, without having any overlap. So it's really a, a, a gift to the Church. 
Well, and he it was known as the Pilgrim Pope, though I sometimes I think we look back in just because we're so close to this particular part of history, we think John Paul did all the traveling, but really Pope Paul VI set the precedent for getting out there and using those jets to, to get around the world. No question. In fact, that's why I was mentioning about when he came to New York, when he, when he went to Bombay in 1964, and then when he went to the Holy Land also. Those were major things, and he went to the United States on October 3rd, 1965, right as the council was ending. I mean, that was, and that was when the Vietnam War was beginning to escalate and so forth. It was a really tense time in uh, history. And when he went there, he, it was a one-day trip, and he went to visit Cardinal Spellman, uh, and then he went to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and then he went to... Actually, there was a tremendous... I, re- I remember this, when he visited President Johnson at the Waldorf Astoria. And it was interesting, his daughter had converted to Catholicism. Mm. She went, and, you know, he, he was all worried about introducing her to the Pope, and, like, you know, Paul VI put them at ease about it. But uh, there was a, you know, they had about a 45-minute discussion on the war and, and uh, peace and so forth. And then he went to the United Nations and gave, without question, one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century. And then, in fact, his, the, the, the phrase that will, will go down in, in remembrance of him will be, no more war, war never again. That was the height of his speech. And as you mentioned, he was a pilgrim of peace. That's how these secular books that commemorated his visit talked it, portrayed it, a pilgrim of peace, and then he closed his day with Yankee Stadium with a, with a mass for peace. And I always kid people, because I'm a big Beatles fan. I said, you know, I have to admit that, 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 that Paul McCartney comes in second, because they only drew 55,000 at Shea in August 1965, and Paul VI drew 90,000 at Yankee Stadium. So wow. he beat the Beatles by 35,000. But if you, re- you, can, you can still get the text. And I have them in the book of his his talks during um, Yankee, you know, at the Harmony Yankee Stadium and so forth. And uh, it was amazing, you know, his emphasis on peace. And he was really the Pope of dialogue. And that's why, to my mind, he he is so precious and important today. Is he reminds us how important it is to get to dialogue. In fact, I just got a letter from my diocese asking me to put together. Uh, something on Alexio Divina uh, program. They're interested in some of the thoughts, and I'm working with the Catholic Biblical Federation, which is the, the biggest biblical association in the world. It was begun by none other than Paul VI in 1969 to foster the uh, spread of biblical studies within the Church and spirituality, particularly in the parish and family level. And uh, I'm working on a book with them regarding Alexio Divina articles, and in the program, I've decided that I cannot teach Lexia Divina without dialogue, because mm-hmm. Lexia Divina, praying the scriptures, is a form of dialogue with God. And as Catholics, we know that our dialogue with God is integrally related to our dialogue with ourselves and our dialogue with our neighbor. You can't separate them. Those two commandments go together. And Paul VI is an excellent guide for that, because he teaches, in fact, his first encyclical, Ecclesium Suum, pastor of the Church, was about dialogue, the art of spiritual communication. Mm. And he calls it the dialogue of salvation. That's what's wonderful. You know, when you think of it, the dialogue of salvation, and, you know, we talk about the new evangelization. He's, he's wonderful because he, he teaches us to engage in dialogue with people, to listen to them, and to pay attention to what they do. And he's a great model for that because he did dialogue, and because he dialogued, he was able to bring the council to a conclusion without alienating people who are more traditional or, or the more progressive. He was able to balance and placate both sides so that we could come out in a unified way, such that the final document in the Council on the Bible only had eight dissenting votes. 
uh, it had like 2,600 four votes. So that's how much of a unifier he was. And that really shows the action of the Holy Spirit. Again, a great point. He, in 1975, the charismatic, uh, charismatics, I guess they had started around, I guess, in the late 60s, actually here in Pittsburgh and Duquesne, they had a conference, and he spoke to them. He act- and there was a book that was published, and they referred to him as the Pope of the Holy Spirit. In fact, at the beginning of my book, I have a quote about him with the Holy Spirit, because he was very, very much emphasized the importance of paying attention to the Spirit in our lives, and even with how horrible the culture has, is, particularly in the Western cultures, it's become so secular. Paul VI, who was a lover of art, who, who initiated the modern art wing of the Vatican, which I kind of got a private tour of when I was in Rome, mm. and it's absolutely splendid. It's, without question, the greatest modern art wing of any museum I've been at, and I've been all over the world. And he was a lover of music. He had his own record collection. He invited artists to the Sistine Chapel in 1964 to talk about bringing them back to the church because the church had such a rich heritage of art. And he reminds us, he challenges us in terms of that, as that quote I mentioned earlier, there was reprehensible superficialities, those unpardonable distractions, to really bring a Catholic culture. He even had a quote on sports talking about how the spiritual elevation that's attainable to sports is an indispensable part of modern society. And he didn't mean just professional sports. He meant healthy, loving competition, utilizing our bodies in a way to give glory to God and to foster teamwork with other people. I think that's what's so neat about your book, Pope Paul VI, Christian Values and Virtues, because the fact that you were able to pull all the information, I mean, did you read everything he ever said never did no 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 sure seems like it carl i mean you pull up all kinds of wonderful gems from all kinds of resources well you know what i i will i will say this it's without question the most important book that i've ever done because he is such an he's an essential figure and it took me 10 years to get it published it took a if i told you all the difficulties encountered with this book. I had to submit it to the same publisher four times before it was published. I mean, mm. talk about perseverance. Mm-hmm. And we, we ran into all kinds of problems with, in terms of getting permission from the Vatican to quote. I mean, it was, it, it, it was exactly what you'd expect with something from Paul VI, because even the people in the Vatican, he ran into, there were some snafus getting some of the permissions for the quotes because of a new policy. And I thought, this is Paul VI all the way. He always experienced these kind of difficulties. I mean, he, people at the extremes, did not like him, because he was, he was moderate. He was very nuanced. But uh, I, I spent 10 years getting the book published, and I, there's no way I could cover everything he did, but I ran into, uh, I was able to correspond with his secretary, who died earlier this year. And as I mentioned, I went over to Italy to his, um, went to the church that he preached at and to his institute, and uh, I still read him. I'm, but you know what, it, if you get my book, expected to take about 10 years to get through it because it takes me and i wrote this thing i compiled it it i can't you can't move fast through his works because he has such profound pregnant phrases that and, and that's why I, I mentioned lexia divina so often i precede and follow each chapter with a reflection on lexia divina because when we read paul he's so drenched in biblical references that it's like reading the Bible. He gives us such wonderful applications, and we have to do this holistic reading of the whole person to really soak up his entire message. And when you talk about how people on either side of an extreme of an ideology would have an issue with him because they considered him a moderate, you look back and you see the wisdom and how he handled that non-confrontational policy 
towards the Iron Curtain countries. I mean, that really did leave the foundation for what John Paul would bring. Yeah, in fact, I, I think that's a great point, that East politics, that East politics that he did, non-confrontation, he was willing to dialogue. And then, and, and in fact, I, my own feeling is that just as Paul VI will be known for dialogue, John Paul II will be known for the dignity of the person. Without question, I mean, whether it's his theology of the body or anything, but just the monumental feat of John Paul II, able to to help bring down the Iron Curtain in a bloodless revolution. When you think of it, it's amazing that mm-hmm. uh, one of the greatest superpowers in world history fell without with very little bloodshed. It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And a pope from a country that had been beaten up for centuries, that had lost its identity in the 18th century, a pope from a small, obscure, downtrodden country was instrumental in bringing down, in a loving way, the Iron Curtain. And his dialogue with Gorbachev is in the, the footsteps of Paul VI. And I want to go back to what you said earlier, Chris, which was a great point about how Paul VI is really relevant. Mm-hmm. Many people mention Humanavitae. That's like his, you know, everybody associates him with that. And obviously that was a wonderful document, very prophetic. But what they don't look at, and I put this in the book, is his talks to the teams of Our Lady. He gave, in, on May 4th, 1970, a, a superb 5,000-word address to these married couples, and he was freed from having to worry about all the technicalities of an encyclical, and he had such a profound sense of the challenge of family life, and he, he said, there are some struggles in marriage and family life that can only be adored by our recognition that you're undergoing the passion of Christ. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it's like, wow, he's not saying that this is easy. He's not saying it's, you know, he's saying that, that you're, you have to look at it as redemptive suffering, allied to the, the uh, passion of Christ. And he said, often in cruel circumstances, and he, he, he mentioned, uh, he, you know, how, the, as you mentioned, it's, it's the, the, the seminary, the family, is the domestic church. And he said that uh, a couple that gets along, a smiling child, is a sermon without words and a very effective one. So, yeah, I, I, and, you know, the thing about Paul VI is, when you get in, the more you get into him, the more you're going to find that the things that you don't hear about him some of his more uh, less publicized works are really are just outstanding. His, his apostolic exhortation on Mary, Mary Ellis Cultus, is probably the best papal treatment of Mary in the Bible that's ever been done. It's it's he has one, and I I I have a I'm trying to get a, a second book published on him, which is a little difficult because many people still don't think he was the, the, the fat Italian guy that died in 63 or the guy that only lived a year. People still are confused about who he is. But in, in this book I hope to get out, I have a, a section there in which he just goes through all the New Testament references to Mary, and he makes applications of them. So if you want to see how Mary is intertwined in the liturgy, we just had All Saints uh, Feast recently, mm-hmm. um, Paul VI is the person to go to, and he really he has a tremendous... And he wrote actually several encyclicals on on the Rosary and on Mary. It's it's you know people don't know that, but he was very, uh, very, and he's the one who proclaimed her mother of the Church in nineteen in November of nineteen sixty four. So uh, he's very devoted to Mary, and but also very devoted to uh, the whole of Catholic faith. Well, and he really didn't cave into what was occurring in the sixties with that whole idea of the feminine mystique and, for lack of a better way, the now culture. He wouldn't cave into that. He really thought it was important to be able to clearly delineate the masculine and the feminine. 
you know, you're, you're precisely right, and he's the first pope to name a woman doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. And his addresses on naming first St. Teresa of Avila and then Catherine of Sam and doctors of the church in 1970 are phenomenal. I mean, you read these, and it's like, it's like a professor who's a master of the subject exposing how relevant these great saints are for today. And without... I, I, you make a good point. He's, he's able to avoid ideology. He doesn't get swept up in the current of modern life, yet he's very sensitive to the concerns. But he's able to bring the core Christianity to the common person in a profound way that's very challenging, but also gentle. In fact, his address, uh, the, the, um, the, the first Wednesday after when he issued Humana Vitae, is almost never mentioned by people who comment on the encyclical, but he really tells you what a strain he was under. And he, he made a point that really struck me. He said that he was extremely worried that he would not put on burdens on people beyond what is required. And that's really a profound thing, that he was very concerned to not ask more than what God would want of people. I mean, so he was extremely sensitive to being right on in terms of what the Holy Spirit wanted. And, and like you, Carl, I mean, you and I are contemporaries. I mean, when I was a teenager, when Paul VI was our Pope, I mean, I can remember all of the buzz that was going around before Humanae Vitae was issued. And because everyone figured he was so moderate, it was like, oh, finally the church is going to come into the culture of the world and this and that and the other thing. Uh, everyone was figuring there'd be endorsements of birth control and this and that and the other thing. And when that came out, just the opposite happened. I mean, I can remember that time vividly. It was it was just phenomenal. The interesting thing about that is that many people, when they talk about Humanae Vitae, all they do is say that he upheld the traditional ban of the, of the you know the church's uh, teaching on on uh, birth control. When I was in Michigan at the late seventies, it was a very progressive parish, and there were these young priests and everything, and they were they were you know on 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 the edge, not in a bad way, but they were they were pretty much out there. And I'll and I'll never forget this one young priest saying that all these people talk about humanity vitae, but no one talks about the beautiful statement on love, that it, on marital love. I mean, that's, that's really some of its most profound statements, and I have those in the book. But even more so is the final section, Pastoral Care, where he talks about the importance of dealing with this at the pastoral level. And he even has a section there, which is really fitting Paul. And he said, if, if couples still find themselves in the grip of sin, they are not to despair, but to have recourse to the sacrament of confession and never to lose hope. And I thought that was really interesting. People don't, you know, they forget that he said that. In other words, if people still found themselves trapped by whatever you want to call it, the contraceptive mentality or whatever excess or sinfulness, to not give up, that God is gentle, God is patient and to use the sacraments as strength to keep going. And it's, people don't pay attention to that. All they focus on is his, his thing. And the other thing to, to bear in mind is, in 1966, he had issued penitemony, which is when he uh, gave the individual bishops the right, or the you know, decision as to whether to uphold the um, fasting. You know, we used to not eat meat on Friday. Right. And he basically changed that so that you would give up some other penance, because he realized, being sensitive to culture, that that had lost some meaning. But in that document, he said, we are to substitute another penance on Friday. We're not just getting rid of the whole thing, we're just changing it. And he knew, obviously, once that was issued, all the press focused on was no more meat on Friday. And people didn't follow the rest of the thing. So I have to believe he bore that in mind. Had he given, you know, had he endorsed contraception in any way, 
it would have been just like what happened to the Protestants who didn't until 1930 were along with us in um, rejecting it. Mm-hmm. People would have ignored all the stipulations and everything that the majority commission that John XXIII had set up to study it, that they had recommended, because they gave a qualified endorsement to it in certain cer- extreme circumstances. People would have ignored that. Instead, he made a courageous decision, which he paid dearly for, but now, um, you know, it, it, uh, in my judgment, it, it's one of the, the, the foundational moral decisions of the 20th century, and it, and it really, it, it, and, and, you know, it, 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 it upheld the dignity of the family and a dignity of the sexes, male and female, in modern life, and it was prophetic. Yeah, I mean, it was truly prophetic and visionary, especially when you look at where we're at right now in 2007. Carl, before we wrap up, any one particular favorite Pope Paul VI antidote that you have for us? Oh, boy, that's a, you know what? <laughs> that's a tough one. I, I would have to say it would be when Aldo Moro was a prime minister of Italy, and he was very—he was a good Catholic, and he had been in politics for 15 years, and he was a, a world-renowned statesman. He was kidnapped by a terrorist group, the Red Brigade, in 1978. Paul VI knew, had known him for a long time, and he tried to intervene, and after this long process, his body was found in the boot of a car riddled with bullets. Mm-hmm. And it was a, 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 an international tragedy. Yep. Paul VI was on his deathbed, basically. This occurred in May of 1978, and he died interestingly, on the Transfiguration, August 6th and 78. He gave a homily, excuse me, not a homily, he gave a closing blessing and a prayer at the end of it. And it's interesting he said this. He said, God, you did not hearken to our prayer. When have you ever heard a pope giving a modern lament? Yeah. It's like he's right out of the Psalms. I thought, this guy really is in, is in total touch with the human spirit, where he, he really even he lamented to God. He said, God, you did not hearken to our prayer. And I thought, but the whole, the whole rest of it was just like the Psalms, praise of God, reaching out to people in a real loving way. But I would have to say that's the best, because he spoke for all Christians who experienced the cross. He was willing to lament, and he showed the timelessness of the Bible. And it was kind of, you know, sort of his uh, fitting testament right before, you know, three months before he passed away. And I think uh, there's quite a legacy, too, in the very least the two men that had succeeded him. I, and I'm not trying to get short shrift to John Paul I, though his time was only, you know, for one month. But when I think of John Paul II and even Benedict XVI, they, having served under Vatican II, they most certainly would have known Pope Paul. And I think they continue on with the, the groundwork that he laid. Absolutely. You know, Pope Paul, he was the Pope maker, by the way. Pope Paul made Luciani, John Paul I, Benedict, and John Paul the second cardinal, so he, he he was a pulp maker, three of them. And I just want to mention to folks, if you know, I love Paul the Sixth, and I've I've tried to do a blog, but I I can't do it because I'm trying to read his writings, and it's taken me too long. Because every time I read them, it's like the Bible. There's a challenge. But feel free if you want to email me, or uh, it's my name K A R L A S C H U L T Z at J U N O dot com, or my website carlwayshultz dot com. If I can provide, I've got more Paul six material than I'll ever use, and I really want to spread the word about him, because he always points right to Jesus, right yeah. to the church, and um, he, he's, you know, he, you can engage him in dialogue, and um, 
and really have a real good sense of what it means to be a modern Catholic. Yeah, you bet. Well, I suspect that we'll be talking to you more about Paul VI in the future. Well, thank you. If he if he becomes a saint in my lifetime, they sure as heck better invite me over there. And if they don't, I'll keep praying to Paul VI, and he'll say, Sorry, Carl, that's what happened to me, too, so join the group. Okay. <laughs> well, is it, is it possible? Is it leading up toward? Is, is there a process of in action right now? So. I, I don't follow that. You know what? I, he'd be the last person in the world to worry about that. Um, I, do, I don't think his, the cause for his beatification is very far along, although I don't know. I don't, I'm not really that uh, far along with it. But I can tell you this right now, Benedict, because Benedict has a special affinity for him because um, Paul VI made him Archbishop of Munich at 77 and a cardinal. And I, I think you're going to find in Benedict's writings, particularly this next one, increasingly references to Paul VI along with John Paul II. So I think he's going to... He, he's going to come more and more into the uh, into the future as 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 we as we look back and say he was prophetic and he he really set the stage for the wonderful pontificate of John Paul II and now Benedict. Yeah, and you know I think really too, Carl, that one of the benefits of setting that stage and the fact that John Paul was so prolific a writer and everything, people are really examining now what the popes from John Paul, particularly John Paul II, had to say on so many things. Everyone's really watching everything that comes from Benedict. It's only natural that that flow back to uh, Pope Paul VI. And the book like yours is right there. Thank you. And I repeat, I did not receive, I I did not read everything that he did. I'm still still trying to assimilate his most basic messages. So if you get my book, you'll join me in trying to figure out how to live this very challenging message. Well, it'll be a great journey to walk together. Carl, again, thanks so much. We appreciate your being with us again. It was nice being with you folks. Thank you for the opportunity.